Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Dom Harvey podcast. This is the Generate KiwiSaver Scheme Summer Series Volume 1. Thanks for downloading and choosing to listen to this very special Best Of compilation. And a special welcome to any brand new listeners. Coming up on this episode, excerpts from a heap of different guests who appeared on the podcast in 2023. So ahead of you is not just one guest, but about 15 absolute legends. The hope is that if some of the snippets ahead of you pique your interest, you'll make a note and go back and listen to the full episode sometime if you're yet to do so. And to make things extra convenient... In the podcast description, I have the names and the order of all the guests in this episode and the time their portion starts, so you can listen to them from start to finish, or just listen to whoever you choose. Up to you. Just prior to cracking into it, special thanks to the sponsor of the summer series, the Generate KiwiSaver Scheme. One of your resolutions for 2024 should be to take a more active interest in your KiwiSaver. There's a saying I really love, which you can apply to most things in life actually, hard choice, easy life, easy choice, hard life. And with money, the easy choice is to spend all your money now and then have a hard life when you retire. The harder choice is to be more disciplined now and put as much of your money as you can away so life can be easy when you retire. I am a massive fan of the Generate team and I cannot speak highly enough about the job they do for their clients. Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of chart-topping long-term performance. If you want to make sure you're making the most of your KiwiSaver account, Talk to an advisor. Head to generatekiwisaver.co.nz forward slash get advice. A copy of their product disclosure statement can be found there too. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited. And of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Okay, let's get into it. The Generate KiwiSaver Scheme Summer Series. First up, Dame Lisa Carrington, how she copes with the pressure of being the greatest New Zealand Olympian of all time. Five gold medals already. This whole episode was a treat, but this short snippet is a brief glimpse into the mind of a true champion. When you're at the Olympics, you stay off social media. Yeah, it's, yeah, I, I think it's a huge distraction for me. In what way? Um, I guess that's not where my mind needs to be in a way. So um, it's looking outward, looking at what, what's happening um, in the world or what other people are going through. And particularly if you follow the other Olympians or Olympic accounts or those types of things, sporting <laughs> accounts, you're seeing, uh, you know, lots of sport coming up yeah. all the time. So it is incredible. It's distracting. Um, and I, it's hard not to – uh, get so feel the pressure yeah. when you see it. Oh, gotcha. And so, so you stay off news sites as well. Like yeah. You're, so when you're in Tokyo, you're not on stuff.co.nz. Oh or, no, no right. way. Yeah. Why? Because of that reason, it just puts too, yeah. much, too much pressure and expectation I, I on you. Yeah, and I don't need to read um, the expectation of 
oh, Lisa Carrington might win, you know, be the most decorated Olympian after this Olympics. She may win a gold medal tomorrow. You've got to watch it. So I think that's, yeah, that's kind of, it brings it right in front of me that, wow, what if I lose? Um, what if someone's saying this, but what if I don't meet that expectation? Absolutely. It, it, yeah, I do have doubt. And I guess that's kind of the, you know, that little birdie or that fear that's just sitting there. It goes, what if you're not good enough? And I guess in a way it's like being okay that, you know, that's also a part of me that I have mm-hmm. doubt and I have a fear that I may fail. Um, but it's kind of having the tools and go, well, actually I'm doing it because I just want to see how well I can go. Like, what can I do? Can I step up to the plate? Um, am I good enough? I guess, you know, maybe I'm not, but it doesn't matter. Hmm. Yeah. I suppose that's like your, um, your inner critical, your, your, yeah. your inner voice. And it, but is, is it mostly good, that, that inner voice? Uh, I think, I think it can be better. Like, I, I guess, really? In what yeah. Way? Um, are you quite are you quite tough on yourself? Yeah, I think yeah. you know. I guess in in sport, it's always like what what's next, especially with what I've uh, what I've managed to do is constantly have that growth over the last um, ten or so years. And it's like, okay, how can I do it better? How can I improve? That's not good enough. Okay, my expectation today, in my training session was to meet this standard. I didn't meet it. Uh, so does that mean I'm not good? Does that equal, does that mean I'm not going to perform and at the next Olympics or those types of things? So, and also it's um, and then just the normal uh, immature being a human thoughts like I'm not smart enough. Um, I need to if I'm going out in public, I need to dress well, look good, put makeup on, do my hair, um, all those types of things. So yeah, there's always there's always that little critic. But it's kind of just managing that, okay, that's, if that's how I feel. But what, what am I here to do? Is that actually important? Mm. Yeah. What do you, if you had to put a percentage on it, like what percentage do you think is um, like negative and mean to yourself like that and what percentage is, is yeah, 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 you're good, Lisa, you got yeah, this. Yeah, I think. You're owning it. <laughs> uh, the tighter I am, the <laughs> <laughs> get re- it gets really tough. Yeah, so um, as the weeks go by and as I, we do like a, a month training cycle. Um, so we do three weeks on one week off kind of thing. And so by week three, yeah, it's really tough to stay on top of those thoughts. Yeah. That's amazing. It's, uh, by the way, thank you for sharing that. It's so good. It's so good to hear that coming from you because you're Lisa fucking. <laughs> like you're, you're, yeah, it's, it's amazing. The, mo- the mind's – I know you've had um, – I want to get into this shortly. Uh, you've, you've seen sports psychologists over the years. Have, have you ever seen a psychologist like just for your own personal self or has it always just been a sporting one? Uh, the amazing thing is I've been able to have the same sports psychologist since I started. Yeah. So um, – and yeah, it is mostly personal, I guess, because sport – whether – I think – who you are, who you bring to sport or physical performance um, is so important. So, mm. yeah, there may be some performance aspects of psychology, but mostly it's who you are. So we're, I'm yeah. constantly working on being better, trying to drop, like, um, what's expected of me. Uh, if I accidentally upset someone, um, if I – you know, people judge me because of my muscles or 
that type of thing. So constantly working on, you know, what what am I most afraid of? Mm. What are the behaviours and habits I do that um, have been crafted to protect myself from that fear? The goat in a boat on the Generate Summer Series. Next up, David Seymour. Uh, he was on the podcast earlier this year, long before the election, where he ended up forming a coalition with Chris Luxon and Winston Peters. In this clip, we talk about his relationship with alcohol and that infamous speech from the 2020 election where he turned up half-cut to make his speech. What's your relationship like with alcohol at the moment? Um, there, there's another clip that went, sort of went a little bit viral of you on election night last time. Oh, champagne on election night. You, um, it was the, the biggest night ever for ACT, so you, yeah. you did have cause to celebrate, but you seemed a little uh, tipsy and slurry, um, and it came out afterwards that you'd been alcohol-free for a couple of years or something, and uh, you had two champagnes and they went to your head. I want to I wanna thank, in addition to my Epsom neighbours and those New Zealanders who party voted acts from Cape Reinga to the Bluff, I want to also thank our 55 candidates up and down New Zealand. I want to thank all of those people who make our democracy. What happened was, because um, I... We thought about well, how are we going to do this night? We'll make an entrance. So I called a very good mate of mine, funnily enough, someone from Kids Line, who's got a boat, and I run about and I said, What do you reckon? Is it possible that we could actually drive to the HQ, Leo Malloy's bar, um, in your boat? And this is like two weeks out from the action. He's like, Don't worry about it. I'll make it happen. See you there. Um, so it's good to have friends like that. And uh, so he, he sorted it out. I met them there, um, and then a couple of other mates. Um, and then we started driving. But actually, you, you've got to go around such a long way to get to the viaduct. <laughs> to get to the jetty or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and Fletch is a great guy, but you know, a few years back he did a skipper's license, and he's just so anal about this. So he's like, no, no, five knots within 200 metres of the shore. I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake. So we're going. And I'm like, like, and like a- yeah, and like people are calling, they're like, oh, TV's ready. Like, are you coming? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile. <laughs> Meanwhile, my good mate Tom, he's in the he's in the back of the boat opening another m- bottle of Moom, and I'm just like, oh shit! So I mean, it took about twenty minutes. We absolutely sozzled by the time we got there. In any case, uh, that that, but I'm not avoiding your, your wider question. Right. Ba- basically, um, there's something Muldoon said: you'll drink more and more um, when you get to this place. And you think about it, um, you go and have lunch, and you think, probably shouldn't have beer, but maybe one. And then, you know, you get to six o'clock and the bells ring and you go out and there's some lobby group or something putting on a function and it's an open bar. And then the bells ring again, you've got to be back in your office, you're not allowed to leave till 10. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got a fridge and you think, well, well, you have one more. I mean, it's only... Tuesday at 10 o'clock and you've already had five or six beers mm. um, and you, you we haven't had Friday or Saturday yet so you can easily end up <laughs> um, you know having 40 or 50 drinks a week yeah, without yeah, even thinking yeah. about it so I, so I got to that point and the biggest measure of it was um, at my peak I was 86 kgs when I quit drink dancing took off about seven and then and then then I quit drinking I got down to about 72 I think so I calculated that my 
at my peak, my, my body mass was actually 18% Heineken. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I, I had, and it was the best thing I ever did. It gave me enormous energy, lost huge amounts of weight, saved a huge amount of money because also not, it's not all free. Mm. Um, and just so I suppose the extra hours you have in your day, the extra productive yep, hours. Absolutely. You know, you don't spend as much time actually doing the drinking and then you wake up an hour earlier feeling fresher. So um, it gives you back two hours a day on average. So, so all of that was was just fantastic, um, but then um, you, you know I, I get a lot of abuse from my staff. People are worried about bullying by MPs. I'm I'm worried about bullying of MPs by their staff, and they all started saying I was a robot. Um, so, so um, oh really? Because you weren't drinking. Well, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And I just thought, well, you know, you make the occasional exception. So, so now I maybe drink once or. Maybe twice a week, but probably more once. Right, right. Because um, you did an interview and you said you had a, like a rule a while ago that um, you only drank if it was a champagne function. Which to <laughs> me, to me, reading between the lines, I read is like being polite. So if, if there's a tray of champagnes for a toast, yeah, you take one. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I probably. But, but, but if you've got this ability to um, regulate your drinking, you like clearly you don't have a drinking problem. Like no, you can stop. No, and I don't. I don't think I. I did. I, I think I. I think I had a lifestyle where that was sort of normal almost. Um, but also, it, it's a it's, well, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because I, I, I was I was comfortably performing my job, but I wasn't reaching my potential, and mm. so I quit on the first of January, twenty nineteen. And you know, by the end of the year, X polling was polling for two or three MPs for the first time in a decade, and then the following year in twenty twenty, we got the best result the party had ever had. So I was definitely performing better then. Uh, I mean, I wasn't necessarily performing badly before. I was re-elected and doing my job and showing up and all that. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting question of, you know, is it just affecting your ability to do your job or affecting your ability to reach your potential? Mm. Uh, and But then, uh, you know, some people say I was a robot. So now I'm in a sort of slightly more... E- uh, a, a, a smoother equilibrium. Yeah, it's strange the the pressure to drink though. It's got to be the only drug in the world. Yeah, although I got to say, I, I I think it's interesting that the, the drinking culture is just improved. And this is another one of these things. If you look at the amount of binge drinking and the amount of alcohol that people consume in New Zealand, it has been falling off a cliff for forty years. Mm. Even as there's been more advertising, even as there's been more product choice, people are getting more sophisticated and and more thoughtful and and the and the breweries and vintners or whatever are having to sell more interesting products instead of just competing on price and volume. So it's a great example of how in a free society we get to a better place than we're used to. And all these idiots, you know, Alcohol Health Watch, I mean, they're a bunch of muppets. Um, they don't know anything. Um, you know, but, but they're, they're – and, you know, Chloe Swarbrick's got this bill to ban alcohol advertising but not from the America's Cup because she's from Auckland Central, which is outrageous. Um, you, you know, it's, a, it's actually a really good example of what happens in a free society. And when I first quit at the start of 2019 – I go up to people and you know ask if I could have any non-alcoholic beer, and they looked at me like I'd just gone up and said, you know, I'd like to try and learn how to put my own dick in my ear. Um, and, you know, Can you not do that? Oh well, well, um, you know, not on cold days anyway. But um, <laughs> um, and uh, but 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 you know now. Basically, everywhere you go has a zero alcohol selection. Yeah, yeah. And I was at a supermarket the other day. They've got a whole aisle of um, zero, a whole sort of shelf of, of alcohol 
free um, drinks. So I, I just look the way the culture is evolving is fantastic. Yeah, and the, and the zero beers they they actually taste quite good now. They've yeah. really sort of like perfected the the recipe. Oh yeah, I mean Heineken Zero is mm. very good. Um, some of the others are a bit syrupy or mm. a bit watery, but yeah, Heineken mm. Zero is great. Next up, Simone Anderson, weight loss influencer. She talked about the psychological reasons for her weight gain prior to having a gastric sleeve operation and then going viral. You first came on my radar after you appeared on the Tyra Banks show and you sort of blew up, went a bit viral. How, when was that, like eight years ago? Yeah, that would have been, no, seven years ago seven now. Years ago, and right. I think, yeah, I came on radio station yeah, and chatted yeah. with you then and it's been on and off since then, really. Yeah, so you, you had um, a gastric sleeve operation, you lost a considerable amount of weight and you sort of blew up and you ended up on the Huffington Post, Daily Mail, all sorts of websites around the world. So... I, I just want to go back. Like, how did you? How, so, what were you at your peak? One hundred and sixty-nine. How did you get so big? For me, I don't think it was one pinpoint in particular, but it was a whole build-up of different things. I had my parents' divorce at thirteen years old. Um, shortly after that, my mum. I found my mum in her bedroom, and she tried to commit suicide. Uh, from there, obviously, I was just quite traumatised with what life was throwing at me. And I met a man that was 10 years my senior. um, When you were? 15, so he was 25. And got into a very, very, very unhealthy, toxic relationship with him. It was very abusive. and And illegal. Yeah. Well, was it a sexual relationship? Yep. Yeah, Yeah, it would have been. Um, Never really thought about that, to be honest. Um, But yeah, spent six years with him, feeling very, very trapped. He controlled every movement. He checked... My car boot every time I left the house. Um, Looking for what? Oh, just to see if I was going out with friends and I put a spare change about. They wouldn't like oh, okay. try to remove me from my friendship circle and family life and things like that. So I think my comfort during that time and the one place I found a little bit of, I guess, happiness and release and felt safe was with food. And it just became something that was always there for me <laughs> that, yeah, brought me a little bit of instant gratification. Mm. And it was just a very, very unhealthy habit um, and lifestyle. I stopped making myself any food. Everything I ate was convenient food. It was all takeaways. I hid my eating. Um, You know, this is even school-aged, you know, bags of lollies after school and things like that at the dairy with whatever money I was making. Uh, And, yeah, it just sort of spiraled from there. And then it got to the point where I was gaining such a rapid amount of weight a year, I could not get control of it. I'd try diets, and I could do a diet. I'm quite, you know quite good at sticking to something. If I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And I would lose the weight and then I'd start living again and I'd pile it all back on and a shitload more. And so for me, yeah, that was basically my relationship with food and how I got to to that point and decided at 23 years old that I did not want to live like this. I was gaining about 10 kgs, if not 15 some years. And I, I did not, you know, I'd sort of been told that I probably wouldn't live to see 30 if I didn't change my lifestyle it was very very unhealthy so it's that dire yeah it was mm. very bad <laughs> simone anderson on the generate summer series next up ryan fox new zealand's top male golfer talked about his relationship with the late great shane warne shane warne no matter what was going on off you know the cricket pitch or the golf course as soon as they got on their respective grounds they managed they'd, to block they'd everything turn, they could out. block everything yeah. out and turn it on and you know warney would play ashes series you know, with whatever going on off the back and all of a sudden take 40-odd wickets and, you know, hold a 
hold the Australian team together kind of thing. Like yeah, he, you, you guys, you guys, um, you weren't close, close, but you were friends, right? Yeah, I knew Warnie pretty well. I played yeah. quite a bit of golf with him. And well, yeah. sorry for your loss earlier this yeah, year. Yeah, that, that must that be was, one of your low points of um, twenty twenty two, I guess. I think it's still a bit of a shock to yeah. be fair. Um, yeah. So, what was your relationship like? You text each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I played a lot. Went, played a lot of golf with him in the UK. Um, played the Dunhill Links, which is a pro am tournament with him every year. So, you know, he was. I I felt like you know if I could, I could text him and I knew I'd get a reply. So right. w- what that means as a friendship, I don't know. But yeah, he was an idol of mine growing up. I used yeah. to bowl a little bit of leg spin, um, and probably up until about a Sodi, we haven't had we haven't had a leg spinner in New Zealand that I can remember for yeah, a while. Yeah. So um, yeah, to be able to call him a mate. And yeah, he was he was great fun. Well, I wonder why he gravitated towards you and not one of the Aussie guys. Like Adam I actually Scott don't. Or I don't know. I mean, he he played the Dunhill Links. He'd played a bunch of times, and he played with some Aussies. And I literally got a text from him one year. I think it was twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen. He goes, Foxy, I don't know um, if you're keen, but I'd love to pair up with you at Dunhill Links this year. And I'm going, A, why is Warnie texting me? And B, why does he want to play with me? But I'm certainly not going to say no. And we got along great. And I mean, he like. A couple of years ago when my daughter was born, I said, oh, I'm looking forward to, to watching. She was born just before Christmas and, um, you know, the Ashes series was on. And Aussie at the time, I said, oh, I'm looking forward to, to watching some cricket and hopefully the little one gets some sleeps on me or something on the couch so I can, you know, watch the, watch the cricket. And I sent him a photo one of the days of my daughter sleeping on me with the cricket on in the background. And he's like, oh, perfect. Just keep listening. And he gives us a shout out an hour later on air and, you know, my wife and daughter's name and everything like that, and that was just the kind of dude he was. But he, yeah, he was he was fun like that. Like you could, I got onto, you know, I had a couple of drinks with him one night. And I was copping some stick from some mates, and I go, "Hey, Warnie, can you uh, can we do a video for my mates?" He's like, "Yep, no problem." He goes, "He just goes, you guys are fucking ball bags." Pulls the fingers at them, and and yeah, I send that video on straight away, and you're like. Okay, that's you know he was he was he was awesome fun like that. He love absolutely love golf as well, but he was again one of those guys uh, like Eric in a way. Like he was a Jack the Lad, but if you got him talking about high performance or something like that, you could see why he was so good. But he could all, he was also just as happy sitting down talking shit and having a couple of beers mm. and just talking about completely random stuff. He's a phenomenal guy. Like you you don't meet actually you know. Apart from his ex-wife, there's probably no one that's got a bad word to say about him. Everyone talks about how he had time for everyone. Yep. Um, you must have had some good nights on the piss. Yeah, I kind of tried to stay away from him a little bit in that respect. I think <laughs> Did you? I, I, he Does wasn't. He, go- he wasn't as bad. He wasn't as bad as what it was made out to be. Like, but when he went, he went hard, and it was generally on like vodka Red Bulls or something weird like <laughs> of that. Like, it was. like. He wasn't. There was, as far as I know, there was never. He hated drugs. Yeah. yeah. Um, he wasn't. He didn't really have too many beers or anything like that. You know, he'd have a, a social beer here and there. But when he wanted to push it hard, he was on. Yeah, so, you know, Jaeger, Jaeger and Red Bulls, Jaeger Bulls. Vodka, vodka oh. Red Bulls, or so, like it was something. And he would just he would wreck himself, and it was mm. pretty. It was pretty funny. I did get on the piss with him a couple of times. It was, mm. he's good value, and some of the stories that would come out would be gold. That was Ryan Fox. Max Key, son of former Prime Minister John Key, was on the podcast earlier this year. He talked about his reputation as being some DJ party boy. It's kind of funny. Like I have this really bad reputation of being this like 
DJ party boy. <laughs> but I'm actually like not loose at all. Like all my friends think I'm a massive pussy. Like I never really drink that often. Like I'm just not not into drugs. Like it's just not I'm actually not like that. I'm actually a bit of a nerd. And it's funny because everyone that meets me, like I'll meet girls and I'll have to meet the parents and they'll be like, Oh, you Hell still yeah. a party boy and I've heard about <laughs> you and I'm, and it's really funny because I'm just not like that. Yeah. But I think I just went through that phase on social media where I was like, I'm going to show all the fun bits. And well, everyone, everyone, and everyone does. does it's a that. snapshot of people's, it's that top 5% of people's lives. Yeah, but I think people just wanted to create this image of my head that made them feel better about themselves. Because mm. I mean, even when I was a DJ, I was working at Jardin, which is like a, you know the top brokering, share brokering company in you know, New Zealand. What did, what did you study at uni? I did finance, international business, right. and property. Well, I was working like seven till eight, right. like every day, like crazy hours, you know, and then I'd DJ like on Saturday nights or I'd do a tour. Or... And so that was the thing was like, you know, I topped classes at uni, like I studied really hard, like tried to be straight A. But I just never, to me, when you're 21, I'm like, who cares about that? So I never posted about that. Mm. You know, and there'd always be comments like, oh, go get a job or like <laughs> go get a degree. And I'd be sitting there like, well, I've got to and you know, I've got a job, you know, I'm working probably harder than you, yeah. you know, but I never, I just got so, you never clapped back. No, nah, I just got so numb to it. That was the one thing growing up with it. I'm so like someone could walk in here and be like, you're a loser, you're this. And it just doesn't phase me. Like it's terrible to get to that point. Is it, yeah. It's where, not good. Where is, like you, one thing your dad was, um, very good at as prime minister was, um, the self deprecating thing. Yeah. Like, and it's, I feel like a lot of New Zealanders, um, oh, maybe I'm just, projecting here from myself but um i did that in radio because you feel like well someone's gonna have a jab at me so i might as well go go in first yeah yeah is that the same for you it still fucking hurts though that stuff see i'm well, you're just numb to it i'm now, so we're... so so numb to it i mean i think there's exceptions to the rule so if a good friend of mine and someone that i respect calls me out and goes you're being an asshole or you're actually like mm. crossing a line 100% I'll listen. Yeah. But if some random troll on the Herald calls me a loser, like, well, <laughs> cool. Like, yeah. You know, like, that yeah, yeah, that yeah. stuff does not have a single drop of impact on me. Oh, that's good. That's a good place to be. Yeah. I, I suppose I got, like, a little bit of radio fame, like, in my – probably didn't start to my 30s. Um, I have a funny story about that. Actually. Oh, really? So I came in for – because remember every year Dad would do Christmas? Yeah, he'd bring come in Christmas gifts, bottle of wine. Yeah. yeah. But I remember I met um, – JJ, Mike, and Dom, and you guys signed this like little poster thing for me. Did we? Yeah, and I literally used to have it like on my wall. You used to like, still oh, there. Come yeah, on, don't there. bullshit. And I thought it was the coolest <laughs> thing ever. I was always like, oh, I met JJ, Mike, and Dom. Yeah, but um, where I was going with that, it's like, um, so I became sort of exposed, I guess, to that sort of social media trolling or whatever when I was a grown ass man. And mm. here you are, you're in your late teens dealing with it. I feel like, I, you know, when you're older, you're probably more emotionally, emotionally well equipped to deal with it. Than being a young kid, just navigating your way through puberty and yeah. going from being a, a boy to a man. And that's where I think what I was touching on earlier, where I say, like, I feel like my upbringing was complicated. I'm not sitting here saying it was harder than anyone else's. I just think it was really different. I mean, there's not many people that go through it. I couldn't talk to anyone and be like, oh, how do I deal with getting abused mm. by 50 year old men on Facebook? Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like. You know, I'd be getting like literal death threats regularly, and like so it was just it was it's unbelievable. So with um the death threats, it's like um what what do you do with that? You just hand it to the cops in the camper van in your driveway, and um or do you just sort of laugh it off? Or um, I mean, most of them are probably loonies, but it's not something that you, you know you can't make jokes like that. Well, if they, it is a joke. They track all that, right. and if someone threatened anyone in our family, it would 
get sorted very very quick. Like they they do take that stuff yeah. seriously, yeah. and that you know now there's laws in place that you can go to prison, you know, for that. So they would pretty quickly, part of me, like work out who said it, where it's coming from, and you know, as you said, sometimes it would just be a drunk kid that said it, you know, and they'd very quickly apologise and kind of take it down. But then, yeah, there were some people where it wasn't a joke. Mm. Um, and obviously that got dealt with in different ways. But, yeah, I mean, every every threat would get assessed, like, differently. Max Key on the Generate Summer Series. Next up, Dean Lonergan, former rugby league star, broadcaster, and boxing and event promoter. He talked about the event that he lost absolutely everything on and how he clawed his way back from the brink of bankruptcy and depression. When we did this bloody massive circus, which lost a huge amount of money, and I got all the aspects of circus that you get right, I got them wrong. So if you're the dumbest thing you can do, if you're ever going to put on a circus, <laughs> the dumbest thing you can do is fly the best acts in from all around the world and only have them compete or you know do their stuff for a week, which is what we did in a, in a fixed outlet. And the reason why it's dumb is, firstly, their prices through the roof, and then you've got all the accommodation expenses, you've got all the bloody um, airfares coming in to be amortised over no more than sort of seven days. Smart circus acts, right? They have their own tents. They travel around the world or travel around the area and you employ them for a long period of time. Their cost per day goes through the floor so you don't have to sell as many tickets. Anyway, so I dropped a million on that. I was probably 1.8 in debt and it took me four years to pay it off. There's no way I was going to go bankrupt because I knew if I did that, I was going to be all over the front pages of the paper. So I called my creditors in and said, look, here's my problem. And I said to them, if you just hang tough with me, I'll get you paid. Then I turned around and I borrowed about half a million. It was about 550k off three different people. They gave me that. So I managed to work out a whole lot of non-risky events, right, that I could run. There was no risk I was going to make money. So what we would do is I got the half million in. I paid off as much of that to keep everyone happy. And then I just went on the slow ride of sort of selling the events, paying them off, selling the new events and paying off the old credit. And that's, that's when you and I got to meet and sort of become yeah. friends because you got back into radio. For yeah, well, the radio income. thing came up because I desperately needed the cash. Yeah. So I was working, I was, I was running a small business trying to make some money. I was working for an organisation trying to raise their money and I was also working on radio. So I basically had three jobs. So when you were uh, saw me on the phone, it's because I'm desperately trying to pay <laughs> off like the bills. This. Mate, I can tell you this. I remember one day I'm on the North Shore and, mate, I couldn't pay my fucking phone bill, you know, and having your phone disconnected is <laughs> you ain't doing nothing. Mm. So they were they were hard times, but you know you have some good times along the way. I end up, I went into moved into a flat with a good mate of mine called Grant Church, who I just love eternally. And we we ended, we were in this flat, or it was a house. Another mate of mine owned it. It was a three bedroom house, and I was in one bedroom, and he had the main bedroom, which had the uh, the ensuite, and it was really nice. And uh, it was a great victory to me when he moved out and I could afford to move into the main bedroom <laughs> for the simple fact like that was just to move forward, right. you know. Was that, like in hindsight looking back, was that period, um, like would you say that's the lowest period of your life? Man, it was Perhaps, stressful. Like, it's got to be, um, I mean, you, you can probably like look back with enough hindsight now to get a clearer picture of things, but to go from like being successful, like being a successful league player, successful broadcaster, successful promoter, having like all the money, all the assets and stuff, and then being yeah. down below zero, it was it's got to be fucking hard. It was stressful. Yeah. I reckon I was depressed for a year. Really? What did depression yeah. look like for you? 
depression for me, um, the only escape was sleep from the pressure. And like for the first year, I knew that if I got it wrong, I was going to be all over the news and for doing this and doing that. And I'm a low life. When all you'd done is made mistakes and tried your best. So the first year was the hardest, right? And when you get to the end of the first year, all of a sudden you realise, oh, I can actually do this and I'm going to get out. But when you talk about pressure, the second you wake up, you're stressed and you're thinking about what's going to go wrong and then you're anxious, right? And that feeling doesn't leave you and it doesn't leave you until you go to sleep. It's like going to bed with a wet blanket. And when you go to sleep, it disappears, but when you wake up, it comes back and it's just stress and it's horrible. So 12 months was probably like that and then it started to diminish after 12 months because you go, I can get out of this. Why, why did it start to diminish? Were you just because making headway? Because you're so, making headway. Yeah. Every time you paid off a bill or paid some money off, it's another it's another victory, you know. And all of a sudden, all the new ideas you're forced to have, they're working, you know. Like you're never going to get rich off them, but you sure as hell are going to pay your debts. Mm. So at the end of twelve months, I've gone right. This is a long, long tunnel, but we I can see the light at the end. And it took another three years after that. Mm. So did you do you see a therapist or anything in that time or no? You I not? don't think so. No, I might have, I might have, you know. And I, I, feel, I feel I read an article somewhere you were reading like a lot of self help books at the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like th- this is a long time ago. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah. Know? Like so, you know, it's a long time ago. And we've we've had all sorts of successes and failures and challenges since then. But having someone you could talk to is essential mm. because it's like a relieving a pressure. Yeah, who you did know? you have? Uh, was it like look, you- I had, always had my mates. Right. And they were great, you know, like Mark Bourneville and Mark Bedford and Mike Patton, mate Steve Cousins, you know, they were fantastic. But, you know, you also need to have other people. You, and it's, I would recommend therapists. I'm not, not big on psychiatry, but certainly from a... But if, for some people that works for them, but mm. a psychologist... Someone you can go and have a release yeah. valve to. Also, I suppose no if, you're, if, you're, if you're 1.7 million in debt, spending 250 for an hour with a yeah. trained professional well, is probably... For a lot of people, that's jump change. But yeah. for me at the yeah. time, that was yeah. a huge amount of money, you know? So, uh, And it just took a long time to pay it back, mm. which was pretty shitty. I wouldn't want to go through it again. Mm. Why... I mean, it says a lot about your character, I think, like not just declaring bankruptcy. Why didn't, why didn't you just do that? That would have been the easiest well, thing to do, right? I guess... My attitude is is that if somebody supplies you a good or a service, right, you're you, it's up to you to pay for it. Now, in that case, it just took a long time for some people to get their money. Mm. But they'd supplied me the goods and the services, so they have to be paid, you know. And, and the alternative, you know, the alternative is you end up on the front page of the paper and fucking all sorts of others. But I've heard people have said that they've gone bankrupt and the stress and pain goes instantly. It, it was just not an option for me, that was all. Just a character thing. So well, I, I don't know if it's character because everyone, it was just it was just not an option. Yeah. Because everyone a- approaches these things differently. You know, I've had friends have gone through similar circumstances and they did things differently and that's fine as well. You know, and I think the most important thing you can do with people is just be upfront and mm. tell them the truth. Tom Hanks was sitting down there that I saw on social media is a wonderful thing, but there's this little sort of thirty second, one minute clip 
where he was sitting with some really famous guys, like it might be Robert De Niro and, and 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 Steven Spielberg and a few others. And he said, "When I was, a, I wish someone had told me when I was a young fella, this too shall pass." Mm. And what he was talking about is that you will have hard times in your life. This too shall pass. You will have amazing highs in your life. This too shall pass. So you've, I think the lesson is try not to get too stressed because one way or another you're going to get out of it, or, you know, and um, don't take it all too yeah, seriously. Yeah, that's a good try one. And enjoy you, it. You've, you've had to learn these lessons the hard way, though. Ugh. Dean Lonigan. Next up, one of New Zealand's most loved comedians and TV presenters, Di Henwood. He talks about living with stage four cancer, and we talked about his biggest fears. I'm scared. I mean, outside of roller coasters. Um, <laughs> oh, we're all scared of them. Apart from the corkscrew at Rainbow's yeah, head, that's nothing to be nah, careful of. No, although I did punch my cousin on that once because I was too scared. When I get scared, <laughs> I start punching people. It's right, a bad right. train. Um, um, I, I suppose I'm scared of, of going without giving all I have to give, like I have, I feel there's so much I have to give as a parent. I feel I've got a young boy and I think navigating the world as a male with compassion and love and sharing your feelings and that is very important. So trying to trying to, to help my son on a journey of masculinity is something that I really want to do. So I have a fear of not being able to do that um, and and not being th- there for my kids, I suppose, is a fear. But then I think that's a fear of a lot of, lot of adults, but mine might be a bit more crystallised. Um, that's so unselfish. Yeah, I, but that's what is – because the thing is when I'm gone, it doesn't affect me. I, you know, I don't. I don't have any fear of death because it's that death. Out of the whole of life, death's the easy part. Like that's just comes and it happens. But it's the it's the being. It's I suppose it's being there because for me, I get so much joy out of people and helping people or um, just being with people. So not being. I suppose not being there, but then if you think about not being there for people, that actually comes back to your own <laughs> ego. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're just really rating yourself. But you, but you, yeah, no, but you, and you, you, you probably should because you do brighten up every room you walk into. Yeah, and I you love make every room that much better. I love, there's nothing better than just coming in to, this is what I love my job of whenever I go into, Radio station, when I go in to do commentary work that I do, um, just going and talking rubbish with people and having a laugh is so much fun. And and bringing some happiness to people mm. is awesome. So as long as I can keep doing that, um, I've won. And, and I, I grew up with a lot of fear, I think. I was, scared, I was pretty scared of things, of... Um, Things in the night. I'm scared of robbers. I was just quite scared of things. Which roller coasters? As yeah, mentioned. roller coasters. I think everyone's scared of things. Yeah. I don't have much fear now. This diagnosis has taken a lot of fear away mm-hmm. from me because I've 
I was the the one thing I was more scared of in my life than anything was cancer. I'd fast forward through cancer and shows. I, I ne- I've never watched the first season of Breaking Bad. Um, one because it's fucking rubbish compared to the rest of the season. Uh, just thought I'd get one controversial thing in there, uh, but um, no, because because of the cancer plot. And um, now I I've not only faced it. Um, I've faced the hardest parts of it, and I've chosen not to suffer. Because um, you can you can go through the hardness, like physically it's hard, mm. physically it hurts. I've been cut open everywhere. I've done this chemo, and that hurts. But I chose not to suffer through any of it, um, because you can choose whether to suffer or not. And I'm not someone who so wants su- suffering's to suffer. a different thing to pain. Yeah, suffering's the mental right. thing of it's very easy. Uh, I find it could be easy to get into the woe is me. Oh, so suffering is an saying, attitude. Oh, I've got this um, affliction. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, this fucking hurts. Mm. How am I going to deal with this pain and move on from this? But And for me, dealing with it is looking it straight in the eyes. Dealing with every dark thought and acknowledging every bit of darkness. Are you braver and less of a wuss than what you maybe thought you were? Yeah, yeah. hard out. I, 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 I would faint. At, I fainted <laughs> at a lab test getting a normal blood test. That's how scared of needles right. I was. I, the first time I had to have an inject. You, you'd be of the same age and stage of when you're like 11 getting those... Oh, tetanus or whatever it was. Yeah, like at school they yes, came round yeah. and injected you and um, girls got a different one, the MMR and tetanus. Yeah, yeah I do remember that. And yeah. so we, for some reason, were given them in front of assembly. <laughs> You'd walk up on the stage and get injected. I'd love to see the anti-vaxxers talk about that. Back in the day, you'd walk on stage at school and get injected. And... And I fainted and fell over in front of the whole school. I um, and then now I don't even think about it. So mm. as shit, it's made me stronger, and it's also made me realise um, what fear is and how to overcome fear. Mm. Yeah, I think I'm much the same as you. I've lived most of my life in fear, and it's held me back from doing things that I, I look back now from the perspective of being a 50-year-old man. It's like, why didn't I just do that? Do that anyway. It's amazing it's how terrible. how age gives you that sort of, one, you give less of a fuck, mm. and two, you're less scared. Mm. And you look back and go, those opportunities, why didn't I just go Yeah, in? I should have just done it. What was the worst that could have happened? No, yeah, I, and I've, that thing also, you know, with opportunities, why didn't I just ask them? Yeah. Why didn't I just put myself out there because you're scared? And then you realise they could have just said no. That's so true. My, my fears are different now. My fears are like if the if the tiled steps are wet. Yeah. I'm fearful <laughs> of walking down them in my all birds. <laughs> Do you have any regrets? Um, It's weird. These things... You know, you know, cringe drunk moments that you think back on. I, I was actually thinking the other day whether I um, regretted my drinking, whether I regretted, you know, those moments you think back and go, oh, I thought that was a funny joke, but I was just, that could have been a bit mean. Yeah, <laughs> or that was a bit. Yeah. Um, oh, please, you do that too. Yeah. 
and we, oh. but then I went, then I sort of keep coming back to this um, uh, point of going. Actually, no, all those moments got me to this moment, and I'm really happy where I am here. I regret. Um, my flatmate being asleep and me being really hammered and putting um, full noise fireworks under his duvet and lighting them, and then in hindsight I could have Fuck, killed him and burned have... down the flat. That is How the... old were you then? Oh, early 20s. Oh, okay. Old enough to know better. Oh, the, and... the amount of things like young dudes do like that and you think that could have been... You know, I, was... I think back on that actually, and like now... At the time, it was like, fuck, that went too far. But you think back and go, that is like killing someone and burning a house down situation. And so that's the thing I definitely regret. You're still friends with that person? Yeah, best friends. Oh, is that right? That shows how... how Apologise to them now. I've apologised many, many times. When, Don't worry, it has not when, been forgotten. When, um, when did you start to regret that? Just it's, as uh, I lit the fuse. <laughs> <laughs> but there's no going back with fireworks. <laughs> oh, my fucking God. Oh, that is outrageous. Oh, that is so lucky. That's, yeah. that's dodging a bullet shit there for him and for you. Yeah, absolutely. Change changed the trajectory of so many lives. Absolutely. The lovely Di Henwood on the Generate Summer Series. Next up, Guy on Spinner, a New Zealand journalist, New Zealand radio presenter, put a book out last year called The Drinking Game, all about New Zealanders and our relationship with alcohol. This is Guy on on the moment he decided to stop drinking alcohol for good. I woke up with a, another hangover on a Sunday morning and said to myself, this is it, I'm stopping drinking right now. I felt I knew that I had the power to do that because I'd given up sugar, which is no easy feat. It's not just talking about sugar as we associate it. And we're talking about all carbohydrates. So quite doable, but quite a big change. And so knowing that I had the discipline to do that and to make a decision and stick to it, I think helped me. And I just did decide that Sunday morning to stop drinking and didn't go to any, you know, AA or anything like that. Not that I'm um, dissing those yes, those things. Yeah, nah, I mean, yeah. that's that's all cool. And um, people have heaps of different types of issues um, with alcohol. You know, it's pretty rich tapestry in terms of um, what issues people face. But I did know in my head that I had the power and discipline to stop doing that. And I think the adjustments to diet after diabetes were... Yeah, it gave me the feeling that I had the strength to do it. Mm. What was the moment? Uh, like that, you, you said you woke up on a Sunday morning with a hangover and just decided that that was um, that was enough. Well, so there was there was no rock bottom moment. There was no incident. Was it boredom? No, it was more the fact that I never had the off switch with alcohol, and I never did from the age of about fourteen or fifteen. Um, and I like a lot of Kiwi guys, you know. So I was born in 1970, so the mid-80s we started drinking at 14, 15, and um, we get drunk every weekend. And I, and I did that till my late 40s, right. you know, and every, every weekend. Some people sort of grow out of it after university. I... Um, I'd always get drunk in the weekend. That's what you did, unless I had a marathon the next day. They were the and you know, so two times a year I wouldn't get drunk on a weekend, you know. And yeah, the the the, the price of the wine um, went up over the years, you know. And you thought you were more sophisticated, possibly, but um, the patterns that had been set and trained in those um, mid teenage years 
didn't change. And 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 when I say I woke up with a hangover, it's probably a little more than that. I woke up again having forgotten what happened the night before. And man, I did that so many times, you know. So I, I never did anything crazy like, oh, you know, I crashed a car or, you know, had that sort of movie-style rock-bottom moment. Mm. I just had probably hundreds of times in my drinking career where I couldn't tell you what happened after nine o'clock at mm. night. And, and, it was, and that Sunday morning was the same. It was a dinner party, a few people over. Um, my wife at the time said that I didn't, hadn't done anything too, too silly or said anything too bad. But I was just like, again, I, I had blackouts, which sounds scary, but a lot of people have them. A lot of drinkers you talk to go, oh, no, I don't have blackouts. But they they don't remember what they told you the night before, so they they, they have got parts of the parts of it missing. And I just think I just thought, man, I I, I I've given up um, ex, ex, excuses for myself and strategies to to mitigate it. I went to all these. Oh look, I'll just try drinking lower alcohol beer till nine o'clock, and then I'll go on the beers, or I'll cut out red wine because that's it's it, heavier, yeah, none of these yeah, strategies yeah, yeah. worked. For thirty-five wow. years, and so I just had had to realise that I'm someone who alcohol doesn't suit me, you know. And I had to, and it took me a long, I don't long know time. If you had a thirty-year career in it, I think it suited you very. Oh, I had some, I had some, I had some moments, um, <laughs> and I had some great times with. It. And this is the yeah. thing in the book: this is not a preachy book about not about don't drink alcohol and the evils of alcohol. That's why it's hard because it's so great too, mm. right? I had some amazing moments with alcohol. It's so entrenched and ingrained in, in just about everything we do. This is why I wanted to have a look at it, because it, it's so woven into the fabric of our lives. Of course it's not. If it was just evil, you know, if it had the reputation of pee, it'd be very different, it'd be black and white. But it's not. It doesn't have that stigma. It no. doesn't. And, I, and that's why I thought, and people do think, oh, look, I can keep going. All my mates do it. Oh, I walk outside and I see the ad for it. Oh, it's time. It's wine o'clock now. Do you want to catch up for a beer? Hey, nice to meet you mate um it's all in that culture so you kind of feel shit i'm i'm an outlier i'm i'm weird if i don't drink and you do get made to feel like that when you don't drink and this is why i wanted to have a look at it not because it's evil in fact almost the opposite because it's so entrenched in our lives that i thought it's really worth put you you almost do need to pull back and that's what you do when when you don't drink you realize shit this is this is really full on this is a big part of our life going on espina Next up on the Generate Summer Series, Adam Perori, former New Zealand cricketer, talking about making it to the summit of Mount Everest. How much does it cost to climb, to, to get in with a good climbing group? Is it like big yeah. money, 50 grand? No, no, it's about, I, I reckon it's about 100 um, to go on those, you know, those full guided, noise premium yeah. guided expeditions. But that gives you safety. So it's the best weather forecasting, it's the best guides, it's lots of Sherpas, it's the best food. Um, it's really the full, you know, the super platinum service. Mm. Um, you can do it a lot cheaper. Um, I mean, if I was going back to K2, I could probably do that on 40 or 50, I reckon. Um, but I wouldn't be part of a guided expedition. I'd take Woody um, and we'd just build out our own infrastructure and we'd climb it without a big group, just yeah. the two of us. We'd still have Sherpa support and all that. Um, but I think... And now that I'm more experienced, I can do that. Um, um, but also, I've had plenty of time in these mountains, you mm. know, climbing on my own. Um, uh, I've had a few pretty interesting experiences doing that. Um, so that's quite different. Have you? Now. Like what? What do you mean? Like, well, like you the know, scary calls? Yeah, or? yeah, I've almost yeah. killed myself Have three, you? three times, yeah. Yeah. Um, what does that look like on a mountain? Uh, on Everest, the first time. 
uh, probably Mannersley was the first time where you know we were pretty exposed at eight thousand meters um, the night before, and and the wind changed. Just you know the the it just it blew. Yeah. Um, blew a hundred miles an hour at four in the morning, which is pretty terrifying. Um, you know, I was, at that stage, you're told to get dressed, um, which is, you know, you're literally in the middle of nowhere, mm. 8,000 metres, it's pitch black, right? Um, and I was sort of like, why am I getting dressed? They're like, because we might be outside soon. Um, <laughs> oh, isn't the tent's just blowing away? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Um, you know, get dressed? It's like, ooh. Okay. Um, and it's noisy, right? Like, it's like being inside a 747, you're in a two-man tent, which is, you know, sort of, this tiny, big, tiny little dive, and yeah. it, suddenly it's flat, right? Like it's literally hitting you in the face. Um, so you're in the middle of all that, trying to get dressed, which is not that easy to do. You got down suits and all the rest of it. Um, so that was sort of the first, uh, sort of you know, if it had blown another 20, 30 miles an hour, which I thought it was going to, you know, you just get blown off the mountain, right? That's mm. the end of it. Um, the wind stopped, and we summited four hours later. Um, but that was the first time where I suddenly went, hey, do you know what? I might be a bit buggered here, um, mm. and there's nothing I can do about out it. Of right? your, out of your depth. I suppose at the time you're just in the moment, and you not don't think until afterwards, like, fuck, that was a close call. Yeah. I mean, I got maniacally calm, right? Like, I just made my peace with it. I was like, mm. well, it's not up to you anymore. Mm. Um, as part of that, you think, because you're good under pressure as well from years as... Well, I do tend to do that, right? Yeah. As the pressure ratchets up, I, I do get maniacally calm. I go the other way. Um, which I think was why I was always pretty good under pressure playing cricket because mm. that's my natural instinct. I, generally speaking, don't freak out. Um, I tend to go the other way, yeah, naturally, and that's been the case with the mountaineering as well. Um, Everest, I got stuck in a massive collapse in the icefall, um, which was just stupid. And what does it does it mean? You're walking along and the the, the ice just disappears beneath you. Yeah. So we were trying to sneak through. It was after our first failed summit attempt, and there were three of us: Woody, David Tate, myself. Four of us, and Adrian Ballinger, senior guide, um, and we were trying to sneak through so we could get back to base camp so we can get an extra day's rest because we knew the next weather window was six days away, mm-hmm. and we were in the ice fall in the evening at six in the evening, which is just stupidity, right? Like, there's an amateur mistake, and uh, the ice just collapsed, and when I say the ice collapsed, an area literally three metres behind me, the size of a football field, just disappeared, <sighs> like literally disappeared. And the ice that we were on just started moving like this. like It was like being in Donkey Kong. Oh, um, my God. And so my bit went up, and uh, David Tate was in front of me. Um, he went down, and his bit of ice, block of ice, they were about the size of this room, um, about four metres by three metres they were, and they all just started moving. David's one split in half, and he fell over. Um, so I thought he's gone, and all I could think of was just stay on your feet. If you stay on your feet, you're a chance. So I'm literally surfing these blocks of ice. <laughs> we can laugh about it now. It's like, holy oh, shit. Um, and it moved probably, I don't know, four or five metres, I reckon, with me on it. Oh. Um, and so that was, and then we saw the size of the collapse behind us. And when I say behind us, like literally two metres behind mm. us just disappeared, right? How far um, down did it drop? Oh, a kilometre. Um, yeah, it just vanished, right? Gone. Um, it took them three days to repair the route after we got back, put it that way. It was a big collapse. Um, and the noise of it, like you could hear it underneath. It was like a 747 mm. starting up underneath you. I'll never forget the sound. Um, and so, the, we, we survived. We got lucky, right? Mm. Dead lucky. There, there wasn't human error or an altitude problem, no, altitude sickness or... or stupidity. <laughs> but, but and these guys are the best climbers in the world, right? Which yeah, is so, so stu- stupidity that you could not have avoided. 
stupidity that right. we just shouldn't have been in the ice fall at six o'clock at night. Okay, gotcha. Everybody knows that, right? right. Literally, it's a, it's a, it's a. Well, how did these guys let it happen? Because when you get under pressure, you make mistakes, right? Right. Yeah, right. we were trying to. We took a chance, and with hindsight, it's just a stupid error. But mm. that's how the best mountaineers in the world get killed. Right. The mountain. There's a saying: mountain doesn't know you're an expert. Um, and you look at you look at all the best climbers; um, they get killed by making amateur mistakes, mm. um, and it happens over and over and over again. Right. At, at that point, why why do you keep going? Why don't you sit in your tent that night and go? Actually, this isn't for me. Is it because you'd come too far? No, I think at that stage you just realise that you just made a mistake, right? It was right. just a stupid mistake. And so, part of what you do as a climber um, is you manage risk. And that was just a poor decision, mm. simple as that. It doesn't mean you're going to make another poor decision. It's just count yourself lucky that you survived it. And don't, don't do, do your it head again. And don't do it again. Don't do it again, right? Yeah. Um, so reassess your risk parameters and, you know, just count yourself lucky. Yeah. So then the, um, the, so the day you climb, you get out of bed at midnight or something and you start climbing? So yeah, you're well, at, no, so that day actually starts at 7,300 metres at Camp 3. So you're up at... Six. So there's base camp, then camp one, camp two, so camp three. Camp, camp three's halfway up the Lhotse face. Okay. It's at 7,300. Um, What's the summit? 8,000? 8,848. Okay, so like a K and a half That's up. That's a fair okay. way to go. Yeah. It's a big yeah. day. Um, so you get out of your tent that morning, you climb the Lhotse face, and then uh, you traverse across, um, uh, and then you end up at um, camp four, which is 8,000. So that takes most of the day. You get into uh, camp four at about lunchtime, um, rest for the afternoon, and then you leave for the summit at midnight. That morning, you're supposed to put your oxygen on, or we were supposed to put our oxygen on at 7,300. I, I get out, and I'm climbing the face reasonably well, but I'm sort of a bit sluggish. Um, uh, there's a couple just of guys, the altitude? Or? Well, I thought it was just altitude, right? Oh, um, yeah. There's a couple of guys who I normally climb faster than were sort of going far, past me, which thought was a bit unusual. I wasn't feeling my best, but I still felt okay. Um, hands were really cold, and then I get to top of the Lhotse face at 8,000 metres, and I sort of thought, better just check my oxygen. And I'd forgotten to turn it on, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's a classic example of being hypoxic, right? Like all of those signs, the cold hands should have been an absolute giveaway. Um, the fact that I was feeling a little bit sluggish, and particularly when other guys are climbing faster than you, that should have said to me, mate, check your oxygen. Mm. But because I was hypoxic, I didn't think that my brain just wasn't working, right? So I climbed all the way to 8,000 with no O's, and then I went, shit, well, that's quite good. because <laughs> you got heaps more than I, the others. I've got lots of oxygen. I'm feeling right. Then I'm going, shit, if I arrive at Camp 4 with you know a heap of oxygen, I'm going to get told off. Um, so I thought, right, I'll just crank it right up and burn it <laughs> off, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I did, and I forget what the leaderage was, but I turned it to maximum. Mate, I just turned into Superman, right? Like I was going far, I was passing the Sherpas, literally. Like it was unbelievable, the difference. Mm. Um, so I got into Camp 4 with a little more oxygen than I should have, but sort of managed to get away with it. But um, the difference between no O's and O's at altitude, like, different thing, right? Yeah, Completely different. Remarkable. Thing. And did you, did you pass... Is it just a, like an urban myth, or do you pass like bodies encased in ice on the way? Oh no, no, that's all there. Is um, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a thing. Um, and then there's uh, uh, what they call Rainbow Valley, which is at the bottom of the I think it's Kangsheng Face, which is climbers have fallen down there. That's the the down suits. So you go over Rainbow Valley. Um, How many bodies are we talking? 
Oh, depends on the snow conditions, right. but when it's quite dry, like our year was quite dry, not a lot of snow. Um, I think we saw three or four, um, and also they're kind of like the tracks sort of that wide, right? And it's yeah, like, well, like half a meter, say about a kilometer and a half oh. straight down on that side, and then you know it's yeah, that side's China. So um, the the sort of the joke is that you're better off falling down the Kangsheng face because you'll live longer. Um, <laughs> it's about two k's down on that side. <laughs> I suppose you have to laugh about it, don't you? Well, the mountaineers have it. pretty black humour, right? Right. Um, I suppose it's necessary. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's sort of a part of it. And were you were you educated on what to do if you see someone on the way that's struggling, and you, yep. are you supposed to just walk past them? Well, it's kind of every man for himself, right? Um, yeah, which dog eat dog. Is sort of not really my ethos, to be honest. But there's you're pretty limited there. what you yeah. can do, right? Um, yeah. You know, it, it really is hard getting yourself down because um, hypoxia at – I didn't really notice it until I got sort of above the Hillary Step um, but and certainly above the South Summit, which is about 8,600 metres, I reckon. And at that stage, I was – even with oxygen, I was quite out of it. Mm. Um, and you get clumsy, like really clumsy. Um, and normally my feet are pretty good, but I was suddenly pretty sloppy with my footwork. You know, it, it's a thing. Um, particularly right at that last little bit. And there's not a lot of room, mate. Yeah. Literally, the track's this wide. You've got you know a big cornice on this side, and over that is China. And this side, you know, it's just the, it's the, the I think it's Kangsheng face. Mm. Um, so, so you get to the summit, then what? Is it just a photo and then get the fuck out of there? No, no, I was up there for about 20 minutes. Really? Yeah. Doing what? Just hanging out with and having a look. Um, <laughs> and it was the weather was perfect, right? Uh, so I was literally had my down suit all unzipped. I was in a t shirt, 6 a.m. No was, way. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I, see, I sort of imagined, um, okay, so you can take your gloves off and take yeah. some photos. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, it was yeah, beautiful yeah. up there, right? There was not a breath of wind. Um, you can see, literally, you can see the curvature of the earth. You can see for Earth's flat, mate. Well, <laughs> I can tell you it's not. <laughs> I've seen it with my own eyes. Yeah, it's wow. definitely around. Well, it sounds um, like you've got a good and day. The sky is sort of bluey black because you're basically on the edge of the atmosphere, and we had a cracker day. Um, mm. And then, so I messed around up there, waited for a few of the other guys to catch up, took some photos, um, and then I had this really strange sensation. It's probably one of the most powerful physical sensations I've ever felt, which is, you know, we need to go down now. Um, and it was sort of quite, yeah, I'll never forget how that felt. It was like, this is great. We don't belong here. We need to go down. Mm. Um, and so that would, yeah, that was my time on the summit. Oh, that sounds incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it was a pretty cool experience. Adam Perori on the Generate Summer Series. Next up, Kiwi supermodel Rachel Hunter. This was a fabulous podcast, one of my favourite guests of 2023. If you haven't listened to it, I'd urge you to go back and download it and listen to it in your own time. But this portion here is Rachel reflecting on her marriage. To Rod Stewart. So let's talk about Rod. First of all, um, in preparation for this interview, I downloaded his um, book on Audible, and I was—I've been listening to some of that. Have you? Have you ever read that book? No. You, but I'm guessing people have told you about what's in it and stuff. No. Like, well, no, I knew, knew, <clears throat> know a little bit, but no. Why? Too hard, or? No, because I just—I I know the story really well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's. As you know, with any situation in life, there's, there's, you know, one perspective, another perspective, and then the truth's usually somewhere yeah, in the middle. Yeah. Well, did you get to pre-read or suggest any edits no. or anything? No, he didn't even offer that. No, there was a complete trust there. Right. It, it wasn't anything. Wow. So what about the poo story? 
Oh my god, how hysterical is that? We were we were on a boat and basically it was the first time that we'd dated and I know you've been seeing according to this is the first time you've consummated. You've been seeing each other a few weeks or and basically the next morning I was like I I actually don't know which part he read, but I was like, What the fuck was on the bed? And basically there was this brown stain and I was like I don't know whether he thought – both of us thought the same thing. And then it was like – but it didn't smell. <laughs> it smelled delicious. It smelled so good you could eat it. And it was chocolate, guys. That's a great story. Isn't it so good? That's the best story ever. And, um, you know, he doesn't oh, say – so many laughs. Honestly, we have so many laughs. We laughed our way through that relationship and – you know, p- people go, then why did you leave? It was like, because I didn't know who I was. Yeah. I, I, I was so young. It was, it was, it had a lot to do with where, where, who was Rachel? What did Rachel like? You know, all of that. And it wasn't because he's, there was no suffocation there. It was just my own, you know, mm. my own. And it, it was probably way before even him. Like, I mean, I left home at 16. Yeah. It's um, it's really sad. Like I was listening to it out on a run, and I I had to stop because I thought I was going to start crying because mm. it's like um, it, like it doesn't reflect badly on on you, but you you broke his heart so badly. But I think I think most adults have probably been in a situation where where you've had your heart broken, and also you've been the person that's had to break another person's heart. And both perspectives are, are horrible, and yeah. you can sort of you know see it from both points of view. And it's um, yeah. it's not an easy read or listen. It's no, tough. You like you feel bad for you, and you feel bad for him. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things that you sit there and you go, "Is this about to come out of my mouth?" You know, when you're about to be break up with someone that you actually really love. According to me, he's reading like an architecture magazine or something because he's looking at some home renovations, and he's asking you about cabinetry benches or whatever. Yeah, and you say under your breath something like, "I don't think I'll be there." No. Yeah. So, how long before that had you sort of been in the departure lounge? Like no, a, few, a few months or no? Like it was. I, I don't. I don't. Like why did you? Why did you vocalize it at that point? Because you can't keep something like that mm. in. You know, you you just can't. You can't. I can't. Like I said to you, I've I've really gone from my heart, and so from that point, you go, oh, is it the way I'm feeling, or isn't it? You know, is it or isn't it? Um, and then when you do, you just go, I need to bring this up now to have this conversation, you know, and how do you start a conversation like that? God, I can't imagine what you were feeling at that point yeah. <laughs> because, you know, as soon as those words are out of your mouth, nothing's going to be the same ever again. Yeah. And as you can see right now, I'm breaking into a menopause sweat because I'm just like <laughs> literally thinking of the whole thing, which shows you that, yeah. that menopause is a whole bit that we can get into that later. But it was, it was hard because... This is someone you love. Yeah. This is someone's kids yeah. you've you've shared, and still to this day, with the thought of how I said that, and how I still look back and go, how the how did I rack up the courage to break up with somebody I love because I didn't know who I was? Like, where is that confusion still? What is that? You know, and sometimes you've just got to say things you have to be in that truth of that moment and go, I don't know where I am and I have to take that risk. And that's what life is, you know, like you have to take that risk of like, I can't 
mess this person around either. You know, I can't pretend I'm in love. Like, I can't pretend. I'm not going to go through my life pretending I'm in love mm. with somebody or not in love with somebody or I've got this on my mind because it wasn't a question of, like, whether I love him. Of course I loved him and still do love him dearly. Not That's not for people to take out of context either. And But at the same time, like... I had to come with the truth of like, I don't know where this is at and and I need the space to figure this out. That's what it was. And then obviously it ended up in a, in, in, in separating and divorce. Um, You took a while to divorce. I didn't. Yeah, we did. Yeah. 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 And also, you know, like seeing, seeing, um, Renee, you know, Renee and Liam through that time, I mean, how old were they at the time? So they were like four seven, and six. Oh, four and six. Oh, yeah. so still painfully so young. S- still very, very yeah. young, yeah. yeah. So the whole thing was just really, it was an interesting time. But we were, we always stayed connected and, and spoke and as hard of, of a time it was. But at the same time, like, I look at Renee and Liam and at that time, I know when I when I broke up, my whole life would be obviously – I would have to remain working because that's what I did to support myself. But also my life would remain around the fact that I'm going to make sure that the kids, it's about their life, what they want to do, like be into, you know, Renee was into dance, Liam into hockey, Renee into soccer. And it wasn't about, at that time, there was obviously touring of getting into, they were getting into that age where they needed to be the be in school or they were on getting tutored mm, and being yeah, on right. planes flying around. So there was that pit. So there were lots of things and it, it worked out for the best, you know. And, you know, Rod is an, an incredible human being. He was definitely a huge love of my life and I, I love him and stand by him and everything he does. He has a, a beautiful wife and they have amazing children. All those children are so deeply connected to all of us. There's, there's a lot of love there. So mm. how lucky am I, you know? I mean, as much as I haven't actually been in a relationship for a very, very long time, but is it by choice or? I don't know. It just kind of happens that way. Yeah. Rachel Hunter on the Generate Summer Series. Next up, Zane Robertson. Zane Robertson, one of New Zealand's most decorated middle distance runners. Early in 2023, he tested positive for a banned performance enhancing drug. And for that, he was banned for seven years, which essentially spelled the end of his career. He gave me an exclusive podcast interview from his home in Kenya explaining why. And it's not just one particular reason. And and I hate it so much that, um, you know, it's it's just a one-off hit and I got caught. And I, it's, it's, been a, it's been building on me for a few years. Frustration and anger at the sport itself. And at any, any elite sport, I just believe the top is, it's not a level playing field like they say. And, why do people like myself, I started to ask myself this question, why do people like myself always have to be the ones to lose or suffer and in the end lose our contracts, lose our income, lose our race winnings and eventually end up not having the ability to have a family or um, live anywhere else in the world from the predicaments we're in. That was one reason. The other reason, well, especially after COVID, the COVID era, prize money and races went down. Contracts were almost 
um, dropped as well. After the Olympics, I was told by one of my companies, uh, we thought you'd run better and immediate exit from the, from the deal. The other company was holding on just to the bare minimum. I had pressure from my management. I was constantly getting injured in the race shoes that I was trying to develop. And nothing was seeming to just go my way. I had a lot of background noise away from the running world as well with after the COVID era, living in New Zealand for a while. I spent a lot of my life savings on just trying to survive and what was in the savings account. I was providing for myself and my um, wife at the time. After the, we left New Zealand, we already knew we were going, through, going to go through a divorce period and it was a nasty divorce proceeding. There was um, a lot of extortion and um, I don't know if I can say attempted murder out here in Africa when I was back and some some things led to led to another and a lot of stress was placed on me and I, I made it I made some bad decisions in a really dark place. Zane Robertson. Next up Sir Ashley Bloomfield. This was a great chat. What a lovely man. In the snippet that I'm about to share with you, he reflects on how him and his wife Libby got together and his keys for maintaining a good relationship. Okay, so let's go back to med school. So this is where you met your wife, Libby. I did, yeah. Where, can you remember, remember that moment? Who, who, who laid eyes on who first? Well, was this the, early on or midway well, through? Well, the funny thing. Was, um, we uh, we uh, actually both remember seeing each other because uh, I was a year ahead. And, and when you start medical school back in those days, there was a thing called Freshers Camp and all the medical students would come together. There was only 100 in each class. It was a pretty small, you know, quite a close group. And the Freshers Camp was run by the students from the year above, and I was involved in running it. And I can still remember seeing her arrive at Freshers Camp with a friend of hers. Uh, but um, we didn't actually start going out till about halfway through our fifth year at med school, and we were married a year later. Um, you know, I, I could, we can still both remember the time, of course, when it happened, and we knew, and that was that. And, and you know, yeah, we're, we're 32 years down the track, and amazing, uh, still um, enjoying each other's company. So it was like a slow burn, like a friendship for a while. Well, or... we knew of each other more. Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, interestingly, it was her brother that kind of I got to know, and he he did the matchmaking. Uh, interest, you know, sort of. So it was outside of medical school. Uh, he was quite keen for us to get together, and he's still a, a, a great friend. And um, you know, uh, we, we were very close as, as a family. Yeah. Was it fairly mutual? Was his, were you keener than her initially, and you had to win her over, or vice versa? Or well, this, that was the thing. It was kind of a, you know, it was mutual. And uh, oh, that's nice. So the moment arrived, and suddenly that was it. We knew, and you know, you know, I can safely say within two months, it was she. Was she that, it was it was my wife that, that raised getting married first. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, within two months, <laughs> and it was more. It was, the question was, so when are we going to get married? That was the. It wasn't a you know, or shall we get married? Yeah. Like when you know, you know. When you know, you know. Um, and after that point, the pressure she was pressuring you to propose. Like no, no, we just planned it all out because yeah. the fifth year of medical school is the big one, and you have exams at the end of the year that are quite substantial, and we did a lot of study. She's a she's. Really smart. She's an A plus student. I am not an A plus student, so I, I did have the benefit of her. Um, her diligence uh, did sort of brush off on me, and I got my best marks ever at medical school in that year. But we just, we decided as soon as the exams are finished, we're going to get engaged that that day, and so we we got engaged that same day. I did the traditional thing and went and kind of 
semi-asked your father for permission, uh, and he was his parents. So I think we're we're sort of you know uh, we're, well they were they were delighted. I think uh, and uh, you know they're, they're great. As I said earlier on, my parents have passed now, so mm. it's lovely to have her parents. That in a sense, my kind of um, uh, now my my parents, and we're we're all very close. It's just a lovely thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah well, I've, I've just turned fifteen. Both my parents are, are still alive, but obviously they're getting older. I think um, yeah. In, anything after the age of fifty, if your parents are still around, you're doing you're doing pretty yeah, lucky, aren't yeah. you? Can you remember the proposal? Was it a romantic proposal or? Yeah, well, of course, it, it, this wasn't a surprise. You know, I didn't see yeah. pull a ring out. We, we had gone <laughs> and chosen the ring. Yeah, yeah. We'd gone and chosen the ring, and we we that we did. We went down to the waterfront there on Tamaki Drive, Mission Bay, and just um, you know formally, I proposed to her, and it was just lovely. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's a special thing, really, um, and. Uh, yeah, it's nice to still be mm. kicking around together. Um, oh, absolutely! Uh, uh, quite a few years later, is there, is there any, th- any sort of secret or anything that you've you know you hold you think well, is the the key or the cornerstone or the the pillars to your successful marriage? Uh, yeah, the, well, it's a bit like leadership. That that the, the, the hardest domain of leadership is leading self, and so the, the 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 best way to have good relationships with other people, including with your you know your lifelong partner, is to is to understand yourself really well and be on that that journey of maturity and growth and yeah. and uh, but fundamentally it's also about communication. You know, you've got to keep communicating about what 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 what's going well and what's not going so well, and just you know, it's the same with anything. Yeah, that, uh, it's and a lot of hard work. I mean, that's the other thing is you've got to put effort in, you've got to put work in um, to relationships. We do it, we do it mm. all the time, but of course the person you kind of spending your, your, your life with, uh, you've got to keep putting the work in. Yeah, and I suppose that's the hard thing about it, especially like um, during the last three years for you, like if you're busy at work all day and you're doing these one o'clock briefings and you come home, the, probably the last thing you want to do is have a conversation or talk about mundane but very important, you know, home stuff. Well, well, that's the challenge. And, you know, Libby was fantastic. She kept our home COVID-free in both the literal and the metaphorical sense. So when I came home, it wasn't a debrief on COVID. She wasn't asked me, oh, what, well, you know, what's the latest? She would she would watch the one o'clock stand-up with, with everybody else. But um, uh, the the thing was, um, I did, tr- and I've always tried to come home because, you know, I've, I've been in senior roles for quite a while. And so you've got to come home and it's you, you can't come home and just, just crash on the sofa and say, oh, grab me a beer, I'm just done. You've got to come home and have energy for your whanau. You've got to be your best self. Um, and there's no, you know, you're in the wrong job if you're coming home and just feeling completely shattered. That doesn't mean you don't come home and, and you're not tired. But the thing was, and you've alluded to this, was my headspace. So, you know, a classic conversation would be, and it'll be, you know, would say, oh, there's a couple of things I need to talk about with you, you know, just general stuff. And I'd say, I've just, I've just got a head full of stuff at the moment. I've got this. I'm just working through. Um, and she would say, quite rightly, when can we talk about it? And I would say, I can't even think about when, you know, when might be a good time. You speak and to my PA. You speak to my <laughs> Get an appointment. But the thing was, when I did finish, and, you know, when I sort of hung up my boots, as it were, at the end of July last year, and suddenly got my brain back, and it made me realise I was carrying the co- the analogy I used. I was carrying the COVID thousand piece jigsaw puzzle in my head the whole time, mm-hmm. and it was a jigsaw puzzle where I didn't have the benefit of the picture on the box to start with. And every bit of information that came along, I had to work out where does this go? What's the picture? And that had taken my entire, virtually my entire brain capacity for two or three years. So when I, you know, left when I walked out of the building, suddenly when she said. 
when Libby said, uh, oh, can we talk about a couple of things? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it right now, you know. And, and you know, what a relief for her. Yeah. And she'd been so patient. So yeah. we, well, we enjoyed a six month. Six months are kind of just doing that. And, <laughs> catching, and up, catching up. Catching yeah. up on her big list, of, her yeah. big to do list. Oh, tell, tell you what, there was a long list of things I needed to do. Oh, the house. I can imagine. But we could enjoy doing them together without yeah. the pressure of, you know, thinking, oh, gosh, I've got a, I've got Mike Hosking at five to seven tomorrow morning. Better start, you know, mm. you know, mentally preparing for that. Sir Ashley Bloomfield. Next up, Rich Farrell. Rich became the first strongman competitor to join the podcast. So, what exactly is a strongman event? And how did he get the nickname The Madness? The nickname, well, that goes way back to when I actually started training for Strongman. I had a training partner, and uh, it was just me and him and my garage training. And I don't know if you watched WWF with Macho Man and Hulk Hogan. And the, oh, back in the glory days back of Back in the glory days. Million Dollar Man. Mega Powers came together. Um, Macho Man was The Madness. And that's just the way I trained when I was a, a little bit smaller. And so that's how... That's how the name came apart, just because I just keep smashing big weights for a little fella, and it's stuck. <laughs> and now, now that's me. Yeah. Were, were you were you a little fella? You're sitting in front. You're the, the biggest dude we've had in that chair. Yeah, oh, it, oh, cozy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's tight fit. Uh, tight fit. You're, you're, no, you're like no one would ever refer to you as a little fella. Now, there's nothing small about you. Nah. I don't, well, I don't know. I haven't seen your genitals, but <laughs> <laughs> lots of people have. But. Uh. <laughs> um, Nah, so my my lifting weights journey has been going for about 10 years yeah. now. Um, back in the day, I was a little bit faster and smaller, 10 to 79 kgs, uh, so big contrast from now. Um, but now I'm clocking in currently at about 120, usually about 125 when I'm competing, uh, and trying to keep that weight going up a little bit more. Yeah, right. So yeah. Where, where are you ranked in terms of New Zealand's strongest uh, people? Uh, I'm definitely in the top 10. Uh, last year, in this competition here, um, I ended up collapsing at the comp, so right. I didn't really get very far in that one. Oh, you just said this competition here, you pointed well, to your t-shirt. What does it say? New Zealand's Strongest Man 2022. Sorry, 2022. You collapsed? Yeah. Um, what happened? I went into the comp, I had the flu for the week before, and uh, I was like, no, nah, no, nah, I'll be right, I'll be right for the day. Uh, and got to... Friday night, I was just like, oh, shit. Okay, one one last good sleep, and I wake up, I was like, oh, I'm not feeling good. So I grabbed my pillow and my duvet. I just went to the comp and had a sleep in between each event. And we got about halfway through the comp, and I came up to the deadlift. Um, I don't know if you've seen it online, but I just went down to pick up the weight and just went good night and just passed out and then ended up in hospital. Um... Yeah, just everything went sideways there, so I had to pull out of the comp. It was a two-day comp. That was just day one. Uh, so I ended up coming last, which is 10th place in the Opens for that one. So hypothetically speaking, if I was in that competition, I would have beaten you. I think you would have had a good chance. <laughs> All I had to do is lift away to not pass out. You would have had to uh, complete a few other events before that one, before right. I passed out. But, yeah, I mean, if everyone's got a chance. All you got to do is turn up on the day, eh? So what, what was it? Did they get to the bottom of it? Uh, it was just a accumulation of uh, things all come together, the flu. I popped all the night and days and the Red Bulls to try power through and then overexerted myself, dehydration, and just the body gave out. So, yeah, but um, that was... October, uh, and then I had the World's Strongest Man 
which was another three or four, four weeks later. So I had to do a quick recovery for that one and just basically um, rest it up for four weeks before I headed over there. And everything seemed to hold up okay then. So it was good. Right. Where were they? Uh, that was over on Daytona Beach right. in Florida. Did you not have a doctor saying, oh, okay, we'd advise you not to go to this? Um, no, obviously I had to go to hospital and I got all hooked up on the heart monitor and they gave me the all clear. All right. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I got I got the official all clear because uh, the missus wouldn't let me lift if they had said no. Yeah. So what, what do you remember about that New Zealand event where you pass out? Um, you got any re- recollection or is it just from what you've seen video recorded? Yeah, I sort of, I sort of remember it. Um, I went to go lift, and it was you could see, it and it just slowly got darker and darker to a to a <laughs> pinhole, and then everyone was touching me and lifting me up. I was like, oh, what happened here? Oh, it was only three hundred kgs. I was trying to lift. That's not a big lift. Wow! Oh, is it, so it happened sort of slowly, like it wasn't just like bang, you blacked out. No, nah, I just you felt, slowly sort of I felt it coming, and um, I was like, I better get this lift up real quick. Um, and I thought I got the lift up, but I'd actually just passed out. So, yeah. Oh my god, how frightening! Yeah, uh, it was a little bit more frightening for my fiance than for me. It's just part of what happens sometimes when you're lifting weights. You you do sort of pass out. So yeah, nothing to be worried about. So these strongman games, what do you, what do you do? What happens there? Is it like just conventional weights, or is it like you see on? Um Oh, what am I thinking? Like CNN or something, where you're lifting boulders and flipping yeah. over tractor tires and things. Yeah, if you think of anything that's not in the gym, and probably more into your um, scrapyard sort of stuff, lifting big stones, pulling Big Mac trucks, um, lifting just awkward stuff and running and carrying with carrying it. It's um, pretty much anything that's awkward to lift is what we do in Strongman. Yeah, just to make it a little bit harder. <laughs> White wear. Uh, that has been in the world's strongest man. Lifting. Is it actually? They um, chuck it on a frame and they carry some fridges along and stuff like that. That was back in the days. They're, they're a little bit flasher these days. Right. But back in the 80s when it was first starting, they, they did lift fridges and stuff. So how often do you move house? You'd be a handy guy to have around when you're moving house. Uh, I have one rule. I have one rule. Is, um, What's that? I don't lift unless it's in the gym. Oh, okay. Otherwise everyone wants me to help lift stuff. I have gone around and helped lift a few uh, like pianos and stuff. The Madness, Rich Farrell on the Generate Summer Series. Next up, Mitch James, New Zealand singer-songwriter. He came back on the first anniversary of the podcast. This was his second visit. He was the very first guest when the podcast launched in 2022. So it seemed fitting to have him back a year later to discuss personal growth we'd both experienced in the year. Thank you for having me back, brother. Brother, thanks for coming back. I thought the time was right because... um, uh, you were the very first guest yeah. on the podcast when it launched um, just over a year ago. So I thought we'd do like um, an update, like since so much has happened in both your life and my life since we yeah. met a year ago for the podcast and uh, thought it's a good time to check in. Not Absolutely. This, for anyone that um, has been one of the day ones and listened to the first episode with Mitch James, or maybe you've gone back and listened to it. I overshared a lot. But th- this, <laughs> the, the idea of this chat's not for it to be like a, the same interview again. Mm. Um, this is a, like a, a different updated conversation. We might touch upon some of the same stuff. Um, but yeah, I just want to see what's been going on in your life. Yeah, absolutely. 
First of all, um, welcome. What do you think to my po- studio, uh, podcast studio? Neon lights. Space. Neon lights. Ah, <laughs> so, this guy. And uh, so your life, um, since we met last time, your second album's been released. Yes. It's called Patience. What, why is, is that a fe- fairly self-explanatory title or why the... I'd like to think so, yeah. It's, um, I had a big, uh, a lot of delays in the whole process to get the album out. It ended up taking four years and many iterations and lots of record label drama and and all of that fun stuff so uh i wanted to name it patience after one year and then it just became ironic (laughs) after four so i felt like i had to keep it i I feel like um i feel like i I can relate with this podcast journey i'm on because Mm. i know where i am and i know where i want to be and unfortunately there are some things where there's just no way of accelerating that process you just you do need that patience but Mm. Fuck, it's difficult, right? Yes, yeah, it is. It's um, it's funny. Like I was talking to my mum the other day on the phone about something going on in my personal life, and I actually said to her, I was like, "Man, like I wish that just because I released an album called Patience, I wish that I'd like mastered and didn't have to ever have to address it again." But it's something that definitely pops up in all areas of life, and when you're energetic people like we are, and uh, I guess you know, as a runner's podcast, I'm pretty sure a lot of people will uh will vouch for the fact that you know the energy never stops. Yeah. Do you do you think um, you think it's like an ADHD thing or just like a like a drive thing? Like you're never quite happy where you are. You're you're always like searching for happiness. What do you think it is? I think uh, probably all of the above. Eh? Yeah. I think there's definitely uh, some ADHD traits that have helped me <laughs> on the way. But I think yeah, it's it's definitely like a, a mixture of uh, of all the all, all of the above. I think drive and perseverance and resilience are. are something I keep coming back to as well, eh? So they definitely helped me on, on the journey of uh, trying to navigate this this patience, I guess, for the last four years. So it's, yeah, it's, it's been a hell of a journey and very frustrating, but um, finally got some uh, clear runway. So it's, it's an exciting uh, new chapter on the horizon. Mitch James. Next up, Mike Rudling, the founder and CEO of Radix Nutrition, who have been a huge supporter of the podcast, in this short snippet, here he is talking about Radix Nutrition and their why. So with Radix, um, we have a problem that we're trying to solve, I, I think, for the world or for us. For, and um, I've never actually seen Radix as... I'm very kind of goal or mission oriented. So um, I, I could, I, you have to make money because it enables you to, to build a team, build a better product. Mm. And, and if you're solving a real problem um, in the world, then to do it at a larger scale. But I don't really care about that. It's always been about uh, solving a problem or, or, or chasing a... Mm. I, I mean, I love problem solving. So for me, Radix, nutrition in the world is is not in a good spot. And the mm. food industry, as we mentioned earlier on, on the whole, I think is uh, quite evil. Um, and it caused a lot of the health issues that we're starting to become aware of. And it's good that people are trying to fix that now, but there's a lot of the solutions out there aren't very genuine or mm-hmm. very deep, and I think someone needs to fix that. So we're having a crack at that. But yeah. I've always chased that goal. Yeah, it's amazing. We Some of our best stuff, you, you know it's cool when everyone, uh, you know, over the years you end up, you know teams teams change and stuff but we've been lucky to have a team that 
really excited and we've uh, we've discovered things or had breakthroughs or done something where people would just work all night on it mm. and it's just awesome no one looks at the clock no one wants to be anywhere else and that seven days a week we have a cool breakthrough or an idea and that's always really exciting and it's it's also fantastic when you see other people excited at it but um protein for example and that uh using that dias frame or, or, or uh, metric mm. that project was just a massive deep dive by a small team of people for a couple of weeks and it was hugely exciting yeah but it's um yeah it's a rewarding journey difficult yeah. Well, now's probably a good time to transition to some of the business stuff. So um, at the time of recording this, it's like the, uh, the, the 10-year anniversary of Radix. Of the idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, 10 years ago you started this business. Tell us about those humble beginnings. So just you and a mate and a, just a little dehumidifier? Yeah, uh, we, uh, we started out just with an idea that I uh, – it's a, a very uh, basic view on what we could do. But we started out, three of us, my father, myself, and a uh, former uh, schoolmate. Not, no idea on the industry, um, which kind of helps and hinders. But if a lot of what the industry is doing isn't the right solution, then you get to begin just as fairly as anyone else does. Mm. But we began at scratch, and we were in Russell in a garage, testing an idea, no clue at all, reading, studying, phoning people up meeting people and we were in in Russell in a garage progressed to a barn and then we stole an empty house for a while I had a big kitchen um, one <laughs> what do you mean you stole it well, no, 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 I'm sort of imagining like an abandoned rental or something exactly <laughs> that <laughs> oh come on yeah and when, when you so our, our product uh, when you freeze dry it it's very dry and then it's very very sensitive to uh, moisture in the air and um I had to tape up every window seam, every crack in the whole house with masking tape and dehumidify it. And um, yeah, it was fun, mad, stupid. And then, but you, you get you get a start. And then uh, we went from Russell, where we were for probably a year, to um, an empty industrial unit in Waiuku, where we were probably for three years. And um, you know, it sounds like a really long time, but you learn so much it's unbelievable mm. so, and, so, uh, so when you started yeah. when you started in Russell um, from the humble beginnings with your mate and your dad and then you're in a rental house like what were your what were your plan did you have like a, a 10 year plan then like could you see yourself being sitting yeah. where we are now yeah. yeah yeah really yeah so I um, was tidying up some when doing some planning recently or, or sharpening some planning up and I deleted some, some old files and um the, the bones of it the main bits of what I was writing 10 years ago are the same as what we're still doing now it's a long road Mike Rudling the founder and CEO of Radix Nutrition next up Susie Cato in this snippet from our podcast we discuss how her iconic songs came about then she shares some recollections of her time on Dancing with the Stars how did the songs come about your, your songs which you're very very famous for like did you write them you oh, came so up from with you them and me, it's our time yeah. the program had been going for about 100 episodes before I got there there was a presenter prior to me and I auditioned along with 70 others 70 or 80 others wow. and um, had just started taking singing lessons so I had enough confidence to sing it's our time in an audition and I can't remember what 
what the other song was, but there were generally about three songs. There was Hello, the Goodbye Song, and at least two others within the show. So I just started taking singing lessons. I love singing anyway, but to do that in front of a camera, in front of people you'd never met before, and I was only about 24, I would have been about 23, 22, 22, 23 by then. So I was still quite nervous. Mm. But um, managed to get the job and was offered the opportunity to move to Dunedin. Thank you very much. But um, <laughs> oh, look, tempting. Oh, tempting. Very tempting. A fantastic community down there. Love it. But freezing. All my, oh yeah. All my family were up here. My boyfriend. This is my now my husband yeah, yeah. was up here. And if the job hadn't worked out, it was a year long contract. It was a big haul to get everything back again, mm. so I kept a foot in, in either camp, and I'd go down there for two weeks, and then come home for two weeks, come home to Auckland for two mm. weeks. Why was everything in Dunedin? Oh, they Is had, that just where, they like had a massive, TV hub? Yeah, right. it, a massive TV hub for years and years and years, for decades really, a lot of children's television was made out of Dunedin, okay. but that's where Rex had decided to set up, he um, purchased the Green Island Civic Picture Theatre, gutted it put in this amazing set and all the offices and things like that, and that was the perfect place for it. Jeez, we've been going 50 minutes. We haven't even got to the got to the, the, the meat yet of oh, Dancing what? with the Stars. Oh, dancing with the Stars and go, what meat's that? When were you on? Was it 2018? 2018, yeah. 2018, and yeah, you, you had Matt as your dance partner. Yeah. You, you didn't do very well, right? You got voted off quite... Early? Oh, no. Oh, did okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry. I, I can't remember. I can't. So <laughs> I you got to about week eight. So I did. I did oh, oh you, oh, you, okay. You did yeah. very well then. Well, I for somebody got... who doesn't dance and somebody who didn't take any extra dance lessons before she started, unlike um, oh, I, was I, that was that Susie being sassy, oh, sassy oh, Susie? Maybe, maybe yeah. <laughs> so um, who who was on your season? Who can you remember some of the other people? Yeah, was David Seymour on that one? Yes, David yeah. Seymour. I love David. We had so much fun together, and he coped so well with all the flack that he got thrown. Yeah, so did he Did he beat you? He yes, went, he did. Right, right. Yeah. But, but that was kind of like a comedy, like it was like a vote for the worst sort of thing. Like oh. no one no one thought David could dance as well as what you could. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, but, yeah, but. I, had, I had, had him on the podcast as well and um, oh, yeah, he talked about his memories of Dancing with yeah, the Stars as yeah, well. Yeah. And look, it was a challenge for us all. Mm. No, some of us more than others because I was I was a decade or two older than, than young Jess, Jess Quinn. Um, oh, she, she won she, that year, right? No, no, she, no. It was um, Samantha Hayes that won that year, right? God, so, but it was her and Jess. I can't believe you were just complimenting me on my research, and now yeah. I've like <laughs> fucked everything up with Dancing with the Stars. Yeah, but no, it, um, it, it was so much fun. It was a huge challenge because, as I say, I started to walk before I could even start to dance, and some of these people were are runners. They're fit as and dancers, so. Um, my dance partner Matt was very, very patient and very, very kind and very, very good at saying left. No, other left without moving his lips. So. <laughs> oh, not while you were doing the actual dance. Yeah, no, not quite. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, he was very good. The, the pressure on his hands, I knew where we were going to go next. It was great. Did you ne- ever, never get involved in it? Absolutely not. Oh. Whenever it's on TV, I, I love it as a show. I get clammy watching it. Like yeah. the thought of learning like 90 seconds worth of dance moves. I don't know how anyone does it. Well, That's JJ a lot did to remember. An amazing job. Yeah, too, JJ did a great job yeah. when she was on. How did you find. Um, so, so you, you've been with your husband for like quarter of a century or whatever it happens to be, like your lifelong partner. How did it feel to suddenly have that level of inti- intimacy with a new person? You know, you're, like you're dancing with someone for eight hours a day, you're oh, yeah. right up in each other's faces. <laughs> even, if there's, even if there's nothing, um, you know, sexual chemistry-wise there, it is still like very, very intimate and in your face. Did that feel weird? Um, it certainly did. Yeah. It certainly did. In fact, we were into about the third or fourth um, day of dancing together and um, Matt said, 
Susie, you're doing so well. You know, you're doing great. He said, however, you know this part of your body, and he pointed to around my chest area, down to about mid-thigh. He said, that part of your body needs to be pressed up against my body from here to there. And he put out his thigh and he said, hop on. (laughs) <laughs> and, <I> went, <laughs> <laughs> and so because of the dances that we're doing you had to put your legs in between each other's and things right, like sort that. of intertwined yeah oh crikey i'd never been in anybody's arms other than my husband's but you know for years it was like <gasps> um panic attack and um but you we got closer and closer we got used to it which was great and then the weekend, the, the day before we were going to be on um, television with the live show, I invited his wife and my husband and my kids to see how mummy was going to be dancing with Matt because I just needed them to all know that <laughs> oh, oh, did <laughs> it you, was more about did, for me did, than anything else. Did you feel like an element of like guilt in a way, like oh, you were you were doing something naughty? Well, like, or not, it just felt well, just it just felt. I just needed them to be aware that yeah. everything was above board, everything was okay. And yes, I was dancing very close to Matt, but Matt was young enough to be my son. And mm. oh god, I love him. He's such a neat guy, and we had so many laughs, and he was so very patient. And I'm just gutted that. Um, I'd finally got brave enough to be airborne the weekend that um, we did our final dance. And I was all set to, I was like, oh, next time he might actually lift me. I'd been so conscious of my, my of myself. Of In what way? My, what do you mean? Oh, um, I'm quite short, but I'm quite solid. And I just didn't want to break his back or anything. Like oh that. come on! <laughs> oh, I know. What are you but weigh? It's also oh. fifty ki- fifty five kilos in yeah, wet clothing. I know, I know. But crikey, um, I can be a dead weight anyway. Um, <laughs> um, but it was also that whole thing of of I'm not great with heights and <laughs> I'm not great with not a lot of clothing on. You know all those sorts yeah, of things. Okay. Is that a generational thing? But it's also a part of of me. I mean, you look at anything that I've worn on television; it's normally up to my neck and down to my toes type thing. Yeah, but, must, yeah. I did wonder about that because it, it, it felt. Um, I mean, it's ballroom dancing. So I was about to say it sort of felt like off brand, the brand that we know as Susie yeah, Cato. Yeah. But but it's not really. It's ballroom dancing. No. But as soon as that the, the promo video came out, it's like, oh shit! Yeah. What have they done with Susie? Exactly. And as somebody said, childhood broken. It was, <laughs> you know, I'm just glad I didn't break the leather, leather pants that I stepped down in because they were so damn tight. But yeah. yeah, you must have been um, smashing like so many. So many personal comfort zone things oh, in yeah. that whole sort yeah. of Dancing with the Stars era. Yeah, so pushed a whole lot of boundaries and learnt a lot about myself. And and once I decided, once I signed the contract, it was like, right, we're going to do this. So stepping out in the leather pants was just the beginning. And then as you, you might have noticed, well, you might not have, but um, the, the, the frocks got shorter and shorter each time until I, the, my final dance was in the pair of togs with a whole lot of feathers hanging out the back. Oh, the, tw- the Tweety Bird costume, yeah, the yellow yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so the next outfit was going to be an absolute stunner. It was more floor length, but it was going to be an absolute stunner. It was going to be the Viennese waltz, and it was going to be absolutely beautiful. And it was a Matt's favourite dance. So I was gutted that we didn't do his favourite dance. And the outfit that he had designed was just going to be perfect. But um, 
I keep thinking one day they'll do a celebrity callback and I'll get called back. <laughs> but they better do it quick because I'm not getting any younger, Dom. It's not I mean, getting any easier. But you know you can do it now. Um, <laughs> you, and you can, so you can teach an old dog new tricks. You eh? can. You can. Well, <laughs> it's just that the old dog needs to want to be able to do the yeah. new tricks, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, so, and have the physicality because we were all strapped up. Yeah. We were. Yeah. Yeah, ribs and, and ankles and all the rest of it, yeah. Did you end up with um, like a post Dancing with the Stars, like come down or depression like oh, yeah isn't well not well, I didn't I didn't have it the same way that a lot of others yeah. did because um I turned 50 a week after I um got voted off the island basically and then two days after dancing with the stars and I kept saying with the contract as I'm signing it it will finish on this date won't it it will finish on this date because um we boarded a plane to go on a cruise around the Mediterranean so you can't turn 50 and have had a better year, I don't think. I did Dancing with the Stars, frocked up, tanned up, you know, glitzed up to the nine. It was a dream come true for me. And then to board a plane to go on a cruise around the Mediterranean was just amazing. Mm. We just had, I had the best year. And I did so little work that I'm still so far behind on catching up with everything that I should have done back in 2018. But um, it was just the best. Susie Cato on the Generate Summer Series. Next up, Billy Evans. I caught up with Billy in Boston during the marathon week in 2023. Billy was the Boston Police Commissioner during the time of the tragic and horrific Boston bombings. These were his recollections of that ghastly day. I was in the hot tub talking to a bunch of officers and we were telling war stories about the marathon. <laughs> and, uh, and one of my detectives ran in and said, hey boss, two bombs went off at the finish line. I was like, no way. That couldn't have happened here. Um, that doesn't happen here in Boston. I thought at first it was a transformer, maybe blew up. Yeah, yeah. Electrical, because that area, Copley Square, had had a few electrical explosions over the last few years. And uh, But he said, no, that's what they're telling me. So I got out, jumped in the shower, got in my car, got home, had to run up three flights of stairs, put on my uniform, and within 10 minutes I was back at the scene. And to see, you know, the pain, the suffering, to see the you know the barriers blown out, the windows. Um, it was uh, you know it was surreal to think that I had run down the street just a little over an hour ago, and to see the destruction is something I always remember. But at that point, you know, I had to put my policeman hat on and go to work trying to secure that scene, make sure the victims were all well taken care, and then direct operations to find out who was responsible mm. for doing it. Yeah, how, how do you, uh, in um, a situation like that, keep cool and, and composed and um, not make any knee-jerk or silly decisions? Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, you're surrounded by chaos and right. you don't know what's going on. No one knows what's going on. No, I mean, my police commissioner was there. You know, then other outside agencies, the FBI, state police, everyone started coming in to assist us. But, you know, you had a lockdown the scene. He had to sweep the whole area with bomb technicians. But then we had to set up a command post up in the Western Hotel close by here and go to work arranging, uh, you know, to have security <coughs> at the hospitals, have security all over because we had some terrorists out running around and we didn't know what the next target would be. Billy Evans. Next up, Campbell Johnstone. Campbell came out during a TV interview with Hilary Barry as the first ever publicly gay All Black. We talked in depth about that decision to go public. So Monday the 30th of January this year, uh, Seven Sharp interview with Hilary, Hilary Barry. Um, 
talk us through the process like leading up to that, like when, uh, who did you speak to? When did you decide to do it with Seven Sharp? What was that process? Um, so, a bit of a backstory is that um, we, there's always media that was always asking and going to Joe Malcolm, and 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 they always knew. And Who's they, Joe Malcolm? Joe Malcolm was a media liaison okay. officer for the All Blacks, and at the time when I was in Canterbury and Crusaders, she was media liaison there. So she's been a, a massive help and a big support, and. Um, and they always would come and ask and say, you know, we, we know it. We know there's Campbell is a, is a gay all black. We, can we publish it? And then and it was always shut down because, for me, it wasn't. It wasn't. I didn't feel right in myself or, or you know secure in myself to do that. I wasn't happy with myself. So for me, it was. Um, it wasn't the right time. And then last year, we I spoke with Rob Nickel from the Players Association, and we had a discussion around this whole idea and how much it could really help people out there and and <clears throat> and people struggling with this and and I honest and and naively just thought well I don't think it can I'm pretty happy where my life is and 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 that and I am comfortable but I don't think I can really help it's just, you know it's just little old, little old me I'm you know, don't really have you are a little now yeah <laughs> exactly don't really have much to offer and then we talked more about it, and it did become apparent that there is, you know, it, it could actually help. And then, so Rob and I structured a, a little way that we thought would be best, which was just visiting the Super Rugby teams and 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 telling a story, and 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 that was it. And then, if the media caught onto it, then you know that would be good. If they didn't, we just keep trucking along. But then we thought we better bring in Joe Malcolm just to get a professional bit of advice on the media aspect and Joe basically said you know we're a little crazy doing it that way and it's not really the best way and and in short words she just said you guys are just so stupid and um, <laughs> and then she said look you want to we want to actually just front the media and kind of pay them back the respect that they showed me and and um and Joe by not um, outing me at the time. Oh, but come on! Like, like outing someone when they're not ready is yeah. like it's, it's a terrible uh, it, it thing is, to do. It is, but someone could have done it. Yeah, and someone could yeah. have. Done it. And so the respect there, we as she said, we just make a, a public story. Um, contact Hillary, ask if she's um, interested, and we do it that way. And that that way, they all can have it, and they can do what they they like with it. And so that was the the plan. So we uh, Joe contacted Hillary. Hillary was jumped on it and um the rest is the what you saw so when how, how long it was a pre-recorded interview so um how, how long before the 30th of january was it recorded so we recorded on the monday morning of okay. the 30th of january oh, and then it went okay. live that night oh so you didn't have like weeks to <laughs> sit and no, tune over no, it no okay it was str- straight away and there was um, a couple of thoughts behind that one was i think uh hillary and that didn't want it leaking um we had to keep it you know, very secret from a lot of avenues, and it was just going to be coming straight away, bang, bang. So, so it sounds like it was like the worst kept secret. You said some media had been sort of hounding the NZRU for, for years. Yeah. So you – it's a strange thing, isn't it? Because, uh, like, um, I used to work with a guy called Mike Peru, who uh, we worked together did a breakfast show for years and years and years. And he like, he, he came out on the air one day, um, but he – 
I mean, he wasn't really in the closet before that anyway. And the respect that his family knew, his friends knew, all his workmates knew. Mm. But he just had that final step to, like, I suppose, be honest with his radio audience. Sounds like it was sort of the same with you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for me, it was like the final step just to have closure. You know, you no longer have that cloud hanging over your head, even though your family, your friends, your teammates, everyone knows, and it's all old news, but just to... You know, lay to rest of that final piece, and it, and it does give you yourself peace. You mind. feel lighter. Yeah, you do. You, you know, you have final closure on mm. the matter, and 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 the other thing was, you know, we can possibly help people, and, yeah. and even when we did, we talked, and even if it was just helping one person, you know, then it's it's been rewarding. Mm. And but the real sense of it, it's actually helped a lot of people by all the messages and 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 uh, and that that I've received from people who you know. Who have left the game of rugby or left a sport because they didn't feel included or they didn't feel that they were a part of it because they struggled with their sexuality? Mm. Um, now they're actually looking, thinking to coming back into that support, into that sport, either as a, uh, a fan or a spectator, but or you know getting back involved in actually playing that sport, which is really cool mm. and it's it's something really rewarding for um, everyone. You know, if, if people are considering to come back into sport. Oh, 100%, 100%. So, so the, the story goes to air. You, you're sitting at home watching it with your partner. Uh, yeah. who, who else? You have like a room full of people or no. just the two of you? No, so we... Um, How are you feeling? You're shitting yourself? <laughs> um, no, 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 I wasn't I wasn't really. I, was, I mean, because Hillary just made it so easy. Yeah. Like, yeah. that was the beauty of it. Yeah, but that's one thing. You do the interview with Hillary, but then it's like, okay, it's time for it to go to air. And now everyone's going to see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, um, so we were just in, in the hotel room in Christchurch. We watched the, the interview and, yeah, it was like, okay. I sort of probably hit under the bed while the interview <laughs> went. And then, uh, yeah, and then... Um, then we went out and had a couple of drinks with um, a few friends um, that we'd organised and that, and um, yeah, that was it, really. <laughs> and th- yeah, then, then, then what, your, your phone's blowing up? Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Like what, yeah, I mean, yeah, like what happened that evening? Did, did, like obviously you felt different yourself, like it's a massive sort of weight off your shoulders, um, but yeah. what was the, like, the, re- the external reaction like? Um, the external action was was incredible. Like the the um, it it spread around the world like wildfire. Like the phone was just um, you know pinging all day, all night, just kept nonstop of people. You know, once you know when Europe woke up and were seeing the story because mm, like on the Guardian um, and things. Yeah, because the um, all the media outlets just ran with it, like BBC, CNN. I mean, and for me, like I honestly, I didn't really think it would spread that. Far, I was probably again naive. I thought maybe we'd we'd hit the New Zealand public in a mass, and then maybe in a greater international sense, we might hit the Australian rugby public. I thought that may have, you know, that would have been about it, but it wasn't. And um, and funny enough, Rob and uh, Joe, they both knew it was going to go wildfire, but they didn't tell me that, and they just uh, just told me that, yeah, when I said, oh, we might just do New Zealand, and they were like, yeah, yeah, you might. No such thing anymore, right? You do yeah. one, yeah. Yeah, they're like, this kid has no idea. <laughs> Campbell hasn't heard of the internet. Yeah, and, well, and, and the other thing is, because I'm, I've always been naturally quite a shy and, and, and reserved person, that um, they probably knew if they told me that it was going to go like that, that I'd I'd probably run for the hills and hide again. <laughs> yeah, do you think, um, I mean, obviously it's been like a positive reaction and there's been so much love and so much support and, and all of that. 
But if they said to you, it's going to be massive. It's going to, everyone around the world's going to know about it, and people are going to reach out from you that you don't know from a bar of soap. Do you think you would have maybe not done it? Um, no, I, I, I joke about that, but um, I, I still would have um, because I was, you know, I'd made made my mind up. Um, we talked, I talked with my partner and everything, and we 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 were very happy to do it. And um, I had this strong belief, and I said to Joe and, and Rob, you know, we we don't want to just open the door and then walk away and we want to open the door and stand by it and 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 that's how we're going to get real traction to help people by standing by there and 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 supporting people as they as as they need or yeah. just yeah getting out there and, and did you did you hear from any old teammates yeah yeah i heard from a lot of them i mean they all do they know or yeah, what? A lot of, yeah. all of them knew so they all just and the more I, the things i heard from them was message of support and just comments and you know like they they know how private i am and things like that and they just would, would say like you know well done it's a really good move you've done well and um yeah considering how private you are and yeah so that was that was nice yeah thanks so much for listening to this episode of the generate kiwi saver scheme summer series full disclosure it takes a fair amount of work to put these episodes together, so I genuinely appreciate you listening right through, and I sincerely hope you enjoyed it. If you ever want to get hold of me for any feedback, guest suggestions, anything else, I'm Dom Harvey NZ on Instagram, or you can email me, domharveynz at gmail.com. And if you don't do so already, please hit the subscribe or auto-download button on your podcast app so you won't ever miss an episode of the show. 2023 has been epic, but 2024 is, I hope, going to be even bigger. Guests in early 2024 include the star of Virgin River on Netflix, Martin Henderson, Warriors coach Andrew Webster, and Steve Williams, the caddy who worked with Tiger Woods at the absolute peak of his powers. It truly is going to be a cracker of a year as the podcast continues to grow. Just before I sign off, big thanks to the absolute weapons at the Generate Kiwi Saver Scheme. I'm a fan of the Generate team and I can't speak highly enough about the job they do for their clients. Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of chart-topping long-term performance. If you want to make sure you're making the most of your KiwiSaver account, talk to an advisor. Head to generatekiwisaver.co.nz forward slash get advice. That's generatekiwisaver.co.nz forward slash get advice. A copy of their product disclosure statement can be found there too. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited. And of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. All right, thanks so much. And I do hope to see you next week on the Dom Harvey Podcast. See ya. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.